Well, good morning. He is risen. When I was uh, 10 or 11 years old, our family lived in a suburb of Youngstown, Ohio. <clears throat> we lived in a kind of a nice little neighborhood, and there was a sidewalk out front, and behind our house were some woods that we could play in. And if you walked out our front door and down the steps onto the sidewalk and you went right three blocks, <clears throat> you would come to a turn in the sidewalk where, where the sidewalk suddenly shot up the hill along that other side. And along that side was one of the busiest roads in our area. And it intersected with our neighborhood. And so as a 10 or 11-year-old boy, I was always made sure or told, you know, don't go into the road, you know, stay on the sidewalk or whatever. Well, one day I decided to ride my bike on the sidewalk to the end there, which back then you could do without getting arrested. And I rode down to the end there, and when I got to the end, I thought, you know, it'd be really, really fun to walk up to the top there and ride down the hill. I knew I couldn't bike up there, but I could, I could walk my bike up there, and so that's exactly what I did. I walked up the sidewalk to the very top of the hill, I jumped on my bike, and I shot down, and almost immediately I realized, I'm going to have a little bit of a problem here. Because I was, going, I was going so fast, I, I didn't think I could make the turn. I was going to end up in the, in the street, which was really very dangerous because cars turned in there. And I wasn't sure what to do, but at the last minute I said, no, I'm going to go for the sidewalk, and I turned very sharply. Well, I didn't exactly stay on the sidewalk. I ended up running right into a tree. It was a tree that a neighbor had planted there in the grassy area between the sidewalk and the road. I ran right into the tree. Here's a, a picture of what the tree looked like. It had a trunk that was probably three to four inches in diameter, maybe even a little bigger than what that looks like. But what was most noteworthy about the tree was the top of it was so full of, of branches and leaves just like this one here. Now the good news is that because the tree wasn't very big, I didn't get hurt. Uh, my tire front rim did, it got mangled pretty badly, and I knew I wouldn't be able to use it again, but I was okay. But then I looked at the tree, and I realized that there was a crack that went diagonally almost through the entire trunk. And I thought, oh no. Now, I, I maybe should have left it alone. You know, I, I, I could have just gone on my way and not even known what happened, but I was just curious whether or not I had I damaged the tree or not, and so I, I think I was still sitting on my bike at the time, and I just pushed right above where the crack was, and I was horrified. The tree literally bent in half. It, it just went all the way down to the ground. It was touching the ground. It still had the bark attached or whatever, but I looked at this tree. It's like I killed this tree, and I jumped off my bike, and with the, it wasn't easy, but I managed to get the tree back up in its spot, and it was, it was really good because the crack was at a good angle, and the weight of it was such that it would hold in place, and anyone looking at it from a distance would think it's probably fine. But I knew that the first wind that came along would probably grab those leaves and down it would tip over. And then I looked around to make sure that nobody had seen me. Anybody see what I'd done? I didn't see anybody, so I, I went home and I just left it there. And for the next couple of days, they were really horrible, horrible days. 
Because at any time, I was expecting that there was going to be a knock at the door. Someone would figure out that the, the closest kids in the neighborhood are the ones that live right there where we lived. And <clears throat> I had three brothers, and I'd already hidden the bike in the garage. I knew if my dad saw the bent rim, he'd ask what happened, and so I didn't want him to find out. So I hid that evidence, and, and, and then I'd look out the window sometimes, and I'd see someone walking on the sidewalk, and I'd think, oh, no, they're going to come up to the house. But they didn't. And I got away with it. Nothing happened that I know of. I don't think I ever went back to that corner again, though. I was afraid that if I went down to that corner, that maybe the owner would see me there and then wonder, do you know what happened to my tree? And, and I knew I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to lie about it, you know? And so I avoided that corner. And, and I, I, to this day, I don't know what happened to the tree. You know, now I realize you probably could tape it back together. You probably could attach some wires around it and with some stakes and stabilize it. Probably would grow back. I don't know if it would or it wouldn't. I just don't know. But what I do know is I felt guilty for a long time about what I did. I had, in biblical terms, sinned against my neighbor. You know, the, the, many of you understand that this word sin, it's used, of course, in churches and religions all over the place, but the word just means, in the Greek language anyway, or one of the main words, is it means to miss the mark. According to a scholar by the name of Weist, it was a word that was used to describe a warrior who threw a spear at his foe but missed. So you say, boy, you sinned, you missed. It describes the fact that we all are aiming to live a certain way or be a certain way or do certain things, but we don't always do them, and so we miss the mark, and anytime we miss the mark, it's, it is sin. It also was a word that had the idea of, of losing your way. It's, you know, in the Old Testament, there's a lot written about this idea that there's a way in which the righteous live on this path, but sin is when you walk off the path. A different Greek word that's used, translated sin in our Bibles, is trespass. You know, you see a sign that says no trespassing. And, and though you see the sign, and I admit I've done that before, where it says stay on the trail, but I see the sign, no trespassing. And the thought occurs to me, well, if they don't want me to go there, there must be something good there. So I trespass. It's called sin. And all of us are guilty. What I want us to understand here today is that when we sin against another person or we sin against God, in a sense, what happens is it creates a debt, which is often how sin is described in the pages of the Bible. Most of you, if you have a Bible, if you go to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, you'll come across the verses that say, forgive us our, and instead of using the word sins, which would be okay, to translate it that way, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so I sinned against my neighbor. Instead of paying the debt I owe, I hid it, just like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden after they sinned. The problem is that when we hide the things in our lives, they, they, they don't lead, it doesn't lead to freedom. We end up carrying this yoke around us. The Apostle Paul talked about this talked about the fact that God has not only put within our lives or our hearts a sense of right and wrong, but he's also given us a conscience. And that conscience 
either accuses us or excuses us. And so we do something wrong and our conscience bothers us unless, of course, it's become too callous, which can happen. People can so ignore their conscience that they don't feel it anymore, just like a callus. You couldn't hardly feel the touch anymore. But I felt this, and in retrospect, I wish I had somehow resolved it. Now, the, the truth of the matter is that I wouldn't have been able to pay the debt. I, I wasn't earning any money. There's nothing I could do to pay the debt, which gets to our subject here today about what Jesus did for us. Now, I suspect most of you can relate to this story. We've all done things that are wrong, and maybe this is like a minor thing, probably not to the guy that had to replace the tree. But you can all relate to this, and, and, and we all know that we do things that are wrong, and we feel the, the effects of it. And then sometimes what happens is we go to church or some religion, and we think, well, if, you know, religion will solve it. But oftentimes, actually, religion has the opposite effect. It just makes you feel guilty. I cannot tell you how many people have told me over the years, I stopped going to church because every time I went... They just piled it on. I just felt more guilty. I'd walk in and I'd just feel, walk out feeling worse because they were very, very good about pointing out all the sins. They were not very good about removing them, which is what we're going to talk about here today. Because so much better is to have our sins completely removed, to know that the debt has been paid in full. And there's something that Jesus said as he, he was hanging on the cross that communicated that exact idea that the debt has been paid in full so that all who put their trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ can receive that, that, that dismissal of the debt. We can be set free. Now, many of you know that as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he, he said seven things. <clears throat> he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. We don't know about whom he was referring. It might have been the whole crowd. It might have been the soldiers, but Jesus was there to forgive. He said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He said to a guy that was hanging next to him, a criminal on the cross, likely, by the way, I think a murderer, probably a cohort of Barabbas who was set free and he was dying for his transgressions. And at a certain point, Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Some of the most wonderful verses in the whole Bible. You see, at some point, this guy came to realize who was hanging on the cross next to him. At some point, he came to realize he's the king, he's the Messiah of the Old Testament. At some point, he put it all together, and then he asked Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus, yes, yes, today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And it's really what the cross is all about extending forgiveness. But then Jesus spoke to his mother concerning the disciple John who was also standing there at the base of the cross and he said, behold your son. And then to John, the disciple with whom I think Jesus had the closest relationship, he said to John, there's your mother. And from that point on, John took Mary into his home. History records for the next 11 years or so she, she stayed, Mary, the mother of Jesus, with John. And then, after those three statements, darkness came over the entire area, the land, or even perhaps the world. Jesus was silent, so was God. And then, at three o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon, right before Jesus died, he said four things in quick succession. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the moment in which he took upon himself the sin of the world. 
He said, I am thirsty. He said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And the last thing he said is, it is finished. And it's that last statement I want to focus on today. It is finished. There's just a lot more to that statement than meets the eye. It answers the question, how do we get the debt that we all owed, we all owe to be forgiven? Now, my takeaway today is this, that Jesus paid our debt in full so we wouldn't have to. That's what the cross and the resurrection are all about. He paid our debt in full so we would not have to, or even better, I saw this post on Facebook. Somebody had a sign, just a picture of a sign, and it went this way. He came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. He came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. And my mind goes back to when I was 10 or 11 and I had the inability to pay for the damage I'd caused. I'd sinned, but there was nothing I could do to fix it. Now let's look at the context of these words, though it is finished. And by the way, in the Greek language, it's only one word, but in English, it's three. But it's found in John 19, 28 to 30. We read after this, when Jesus knew that everything was accomplished... The word accomplished there, by the way, is the same Greek word for finished. After this, when Jesus knew everything was now finished that he needed to do, everything that was accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I want to make three observations about that one word in the Greek language or three words in English. It is finished. Three observations about it. First of all, it's noteworthy that Jesus did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. He didn't say, I'm done. He was not talking here about the fact that his death was over, you know, I'm done now. I can go home. That's not what he's saying. He said, it is finished. It's an odd way to word it. What's he referring to? He's referring to what he came to do. It's referring to the price that he paid in full now for the sins of the world. It is finished. And we'll see this in a minute. Jesus knew, of course, all along that the reason he came into this earth was not to start some religion called Christianity or just to relieve the suffering of some people. He came to die on a cross. He came to live a sinless life so that he could die on a cross in our place and for our sin. And he, he knew all along that was, that was his job. That's what he came to do. That was the task that was assigned to him. We had to get a glimpse of this in John chapter 17 as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested and nailed to the cross. And Jesus is praying a prayer to his heavenly Father. It's a remarkable prayer as you look at it, it reveals so much about who Jesus really was and is and what he came to do and everything. But in John 17, we read, in beginning in verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so the Son may glorify you, for you gave him authority over all flesh, so that he, Jesus, may give eternal life to all you've given him. And this is eternal life, 
that they may know you, the only true God and the one you've sent, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus the Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by, and here he uses that word, completing the work you gave me to do. I glorified you by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Now, again, there's a lot here, but before Jesus even prayed this prayer, but not long before, he took three of his disciples, his closest friends, up on a mountain, Peter, James, and John. And and some of you know the story that they went up there to pray, but suddenly Jesus was changed before their very eyes. It's in a event that's called the transfiguration. And in that moment, Jesus took on this amazing glory. His face shone like the sun. His clothing was as bright as the light itself. In that one moment, the disciples got a glimpse of who he really was. I don't think they got it until that very moment to realize this was the son of God and God the son. In that moment, Jesus took upon himself the glory he's had for all eternity. A glory that while he was walking on the earth was kind of hidden. You know, Jesus had said things to indicate who he was. He had talked about the fact before Abraham was, I am. His identity as the son of God and God the son. I don't think they all put it together. And so what Jesus is praying, though, in this prayer in Gethsemane, as he's praying there, is he said, God, I've completed the work you gave me to do. And therefore, I'm ready to receive the glory that I had before. Now, he didn't didn't finish the work yet. In some ways, his prayer on this occasion in the garden was, was prophetic, that he had already resolved with his heavenly Father, I'm going the distance with this thing. I'm yielding myself. I have completed everything you've asked me to do, is how I would understand that. I've done everything you've asked me to do. You gave me a job to do. And I'm going the distance. Now, he hadn't yet paid the full price. But that's what he's referring to on the cross. When he says, it's finished. You gave me a task to do. To take upon myself the sin of the world, to die and pay the price in full. And that's what's happening at the cross. He wasn't finished, although he was shortly after. But it was finished. But let me mention a second thing about that expression. Besides the fact it's he or it was uh, finished and not he. And that is that this statement, it is finished, is in what's called the perfect tense in, in grammar. When I start talking grammar, I just see people's eyes just glazing over. Like, I don't know anything about grammar. It, it, the way he worded it is, is really significant because Jesus did not use what's called the aorist or past tense. He didn't say, I'm done with a period on the end. That's what the aorist does. It refers to a fixed moment in time that is, comes and goes. It's done. He didn't use that. He didn't say, I'm done. I'm finished. Or even, it's finished. He used the perfect tense. What does the perfect tense mean? It means it is finished with the result that it continues to be finished and will always be finished. The perfect tense is a tense you use when you want to say something happened in a moment of time, but the effects of it went on and on and on and on and on for all eternity. That's what Jesus was saying. It has been finished with the result that the finished work will continue forever. 
Dr. Warren Wearsby explains it this way, it is finished in the Greek text is to telestai, and it means it is finished, it stands finished, and it will always be finished. Now, why does this matter? Well, it shows that the payment that Jesus made on the cross did the job once and for all. That he paid a debt and the debt is paid and continues to be paid and will always be paid. And this is why I talk often here around the fact that when a person puts his or her trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, they receive at that moment eternal life that will never be taken away from them because the sin has been paid for past, present, and future. To suggest that our sins are not forgiven as Christians, like I sinned again, now it needs to be re-forgiven or something, would require another death on the cross. But Jesus said, no, it's been done. The debt has been fully paid once and for all. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified or set apart. For one offering... He's declared them righteous once and for all. The death and resurrection of Christ. Of course, the resurrection is essential because it shows God accepted the payment. That's an essential part of this. That's why we celebrate Easter. He didn't just pay for the sins of the world, but God accepted the payment that he made on our behalf. But let's mention a third thing about this statement. In addition to the fact that it, it doesn't say... I'm finished, but it is finished, and that it happens to be in the perfect tense and not the past tense. It's, it's something that he did that has a continuing effect to the present hour. But the third thing about it is that the way in which we should understand it is that it means paid in full. That's what it means. That the debt has been paid in full. Dr. Warren Wearsby talks about this, how the word tetelestai, that's the Greek word, was used in various ways in, in biblical times. He gives some examples. He says a servant would use it when reporting to his or her master, I've completed the work assigned to me. And of course, Jesus was saying that when he said it is finished. He's saying, I've completed the work you assigned me to do. And so that's how it was used. The servant comes and says tetelestai, <laughs> You know, it's been, it's been completed. It was a word that was used when a priest would examine an animal prior to sacrifice to make sure there was absolutely nothing wrong with it, that it was perfect. That's the word that they would use. And of course, Jesus was the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the word applied to Jesus in that context is great as well. And then it was also used of a writer or an artist who completed his or her work, and then they'd say, it's finished. And Wearsby talks about that. He says, the death of Jesus on the cross completes the picture that God has been painting, the story that he's been writing for centuries. But then Wearsby adds this last point. He says, perhaps the most meaningful meaning of Tetelestai was that it was used by merchants. The debt is paid in full. When he gave himself on the cross, Jesus fully met the righteous demands of a holy law. He paid our debt in full. None of the Old Testament sacrifices could take away sins. Their blood only covered sin. But the Lamb of God shed his blood, and that blood can take away the sins of the world. I love the idea of a debt being paid. 
that he fully paid the debt. A few months ago, I received in the mail a letter from a bank. And when I opened up the letter, I found in there a title for the one vehicle that I had that was, I was paying payments on. And the letter said, you're done. They were sending me the title because they said, you've paid it in full. It's a wonderful feeling, you know, you say, this is mine now. I've got the title that proves it's completely paid in full. I'm waiting to do that with my house. I imagine, and some of you have gotten that title in the mail, and you see the stamp that says paid, or a letter that says this thing has been paid in full, it's yours now, and you are no longer under the yoke of that thing anymore. You've been set free from the, the payment of that thing because the debt has been paid. This is what Jesus did for us. And his solution was the absolute perfect solution because it's what, what was required to pay our debt was death. You know, back in the Garden of Gethsemane, or Garden of Eden, I'm sorry, God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree because if you do, you'll die. He was referring to physical death. He was referring to spiritual death. He was referring to eternal death. If you eat from this tree, death is the consequence. That's the penalty. And they did eat. And spiritual death entered the world. Eternal death entered the world, which is separation from our creator forever. And then they began to die physically. And all of us are are the recipients of this thing. We We all die. But it's why Jesus came, to live a sinless life, to die in our place, to pay in in full. And that's why the payment was so, and his death was so horrible. You say, well, if he wanted to die for the sins of the world, couldn't he have done it a nicer way? No, it had to be like the worst death known. And in some ways, and I don't understand this, but maybe it was even like an eternal death. I I don't know how exactly it worked, but what I know is that there was a debt we could not pay We were all looking at eternal death in the face and Jesus came to give us eternal life. And there's a real irony there because Jesus is the author of life and he died so that he could extend life to us. And so it's like a a trade that takes place at the cross. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He wrote, he, referring to God the Father, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sinless one took upon himself the sin of the world so that God could give us forgiveness and declare us righteous. We became righteous from the one who was righteous who took upon himself the sin of the world. He paid the debt so God could extend forgiveness to us as a free gift. It was an exchange that took place at the cross. When I um, was, went to Bible college, I had, at the time I was playing a guitar, I bought a guitar, it was a 12-string guitar called a Guild Madiera. I, I really loved that guitar. Um, it was hard to tune, too many strings. <laughs> you know, there's always one of them that seemed to be off or needed to be tightened or something. But anyway, I loved playing it, it just sounded so beautiful when it was perfectly in tune and whatever. I get to Bible college and I'm rooming with this guy in the dorm and we have bunk beds. And I arrive, and uh, he had the same guitar I did, a Guild Mattiera 12-string guitar. I'd never seen another one before. And the chance that he'd have the exact guitar was remarkable to me. One day, and he had the lower bunk, I was walking by 
the bunk and I accidentally bumped the guitar, his guitar, sitting on the bed. And it slid off the bed. I think he had one of those like shiny, I don't know, whatever the material was, but it just slid right off the bed, the guitar, and slammed on the ground. It was in the case, but it was one of those black cases that aren't really very good for protection of anything except to get it home. But landed on the ground, and I quickly opened up the case, and I looked, it looked fine. And then I turned it over, and there was a huge crack all the way up the back of it. I, go, I can't believe it. What can I do? I broke your guitar. And then I, I, I thought of the answer. Mine. I'm going to give you mine. Mine in exchange for yours. I'm going to pay the debt I owe with my guitar. Now, for whatever reason, he, he wouldn't let me do it. Which reminds me that sometimes people say no to what Jesus offers too. But that's, that's how this thing works. Now let me offer a couple applications here. For some of you, you know, you haven't yet received this forgiveness. Your debt has not yet been removed because you haven't turned by faith to Jesus Christ to do it. And so, the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him, will not perish, will not suffer eternal ruin, but instead will have eternal life. What's the requirement? Whoever believes in him, whoever makes Jesus the object of your trust, because you can't earn it. The only way you can get it is to receive it. The price has been paid in full, but by faith you say yes to Jesus. Or as Paul put it in Ephesians 2.8, he said, for by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift. Grace is something that's, that's free, it's given to you by God. For by grace, something you don't deserve. For by grace, you are saved. To be saved means to be delivered from the penalty of sin, to be delivered from hell. For by grace, you're saved or rescued through faith. That's the key, it's not of yourselves, it's a gift. And I wanna encourage you by faith to say yes to Jesus. And in a moment, I'm gonna close with a prayer that I invite you to pray, to put your trust in Jesus Christ. It's not the prayer, by the way, itself. It's the faith behind it, acknowledging your sinful condition and reaching out to the risen Lord Jesus Christ to save you. If you're a Christian here today, I want to encourage you to really believe in the effectiveness of what Jesus did on the cross, that the debt really is paid in full. And sometimes we, even we as Christians do things that we're ashamed of or, or whatever, and we think, well, God can't forgive this. Our lack of faith in this area keeps us from making progress spiritually. We need, to, we, we need a, a day by day, as we sin against God in various ways, we turn again to the cross. We reaffirm our faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Or as John put it in John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I'm just saying, believer, believe it. Because there's a joy we have when we're not under the weight of whatever sins we've committed. There's no sin you've committed that's beyond what Jesus already paid in full. But live in the truth of that. Live in the reality of that. But let's close in prayer. And it's just a prayer I invite you to pray in your own heart to God. You can even use your own words if you'd like to express your faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The prayer goes something like this. Dear God, I know I, I sin. I do things that are wrong. And I can't, I can't fix that. But I do believe, God, that you sent your son Jesus to come into this world, to die in my place, 
for my sin and then he rose again from the dead defeating sin and death that you accepted his payment for me and so today I put my trust in your son Jesus I receive him as my savior and I claim the promise you made in John 3 where you said whoever puts their trust in him will have eternal life I pray this in Jesus name and because of what he did for me Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.